Hello, and welcome to The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of my podcast. Lots to talk about lately, so let's start with Bill Cosby. He's a free man today after serving over two years of a maximum 10-year sentence for drugging and molesting former mentee and basketball player Andrea Constant. The decision to free Cosby was procedural, not based on whether he did what he was convicted of. Regardless, the reaction to his conviction being overturned has again reopened a sharp divide over his conduct and the criminal justice system. Let's start with the facts. Cosby was convicted in 2018 after an earlier trial ended in a hung jury. He was sentenced to three to ten years in prison. During his trial, he was remarkably silent, not rising to testify that Constance's allegations were false. His only contribution to his own trial was to call the prosecutor an asshole after he was convicted. But yes, Bill Cosby was freed on a technicality, if you want to call it a technicality. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruled that a prosecutor's promise that Cosby would not be charged criminally in exchange for his depositions in a civil suit brought by Constant, the court ruled, was binding. That same prosecutor, Bruce Castor, declined to prosecute Cosby in 2005. He based that decision on several factors, including the friendly relationship with Cosby in the year between the assault and her report to to the police, talking, of course, about Andrea Constant. Her civil suit went forward, however, and the standard of proof, of course, is lower in a civil case. Because of the promise made by Castor, Cosby ended up making a series of damning admissions in civil court, including his admission that he kept quaaludes and a couple of other drugs to use on unsuspecting women. Now, fast forward to 2015. A different prosecutor, under some pressure as the Me Too movement began to take hold, decides to abandon the agreement that Castor made with Cosby. With mere days until the statute of limitations ran out on Constance's allegations, Cosby was indicted. Three years later, he was convicted and sentenced. Of course, his release reopened a lot of old wounds. As you might expect, Andrea Constant and many, if not most, of the women who accused Cosby of sexual assault and worse were aghast. For many of the accusers and their supporters, this was a gross travesty of justice. How could a sexual predator be released on a technicality? The Cosby supporters, on the other hand, this was sweet vindication. Many of them never acknowledged that the accusers had any credibility at all. Among those who made their opinions clear was Cosby show co-star Felicia Rashad. Her tweet emphatically supported Cosby's release. Her problem is that just last month, she was appointed Dean of the Howard University's College of Fine Arts. There's a a movement afoot to get the university to reconsider that appointment. The division of opinion should come as no surprise to anyone. There are, however, some objective conclusions that I've certainly come to about what happened here. First, Bill Cosby is by no means any sort of exemplary citizen. This is a man 
who admitted he used drugs like Quaaludes and Benadryl to make women consent to have sex with him. Now, I have to say, I've known some crazy people in my life. I've known more than a few low lives. I have never, ever in my life encountered someone who used drugs. Now, I know they exist, obviously. They're date rape drugs, GHB, and all that. But I've just never come across anybody in my years that used drugs to induce women to have sex. I mean, it just wasn't in the cards. For most of the people I knew, wasn't part of my purview. Although, again, I knew it existed. Of course, clouding a woman's mind with these drugs makes consent impossible. And we ought to be really emphatic about that. But it was not impossible to Citizen Cosby. I call him this sarcastically because at the same time he was plying Andrea Constant with little blue pills, he was castigating so-called lower-income black people for a myriad of sins. The same year. I have to say, I always found his use of the term lower-income people a bit condescending. Actually, not just a bit condescending, straight-up condescending. And in light of the timeline here, more than a little hypocritical, I mean really more than a little hypocritical. Some of you may remember his now infamous pound cake speech. In that speech, the important quote was this. People getting shot in the back of the head over a piece of pound cake. And then we all run out and are outraged. The cops shouldn't have shot him. Well, what the hell was he doing with the pound cake in his hand? That's an end quote. Now, he made that speech at the NAACP's 50th anniversary commemoration of the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court decision. That's right. The same year he sexually molested Andrea Constant was the same year he lectured lower income black people about pound cake. Is there somebody here who thinks that's consistent? Does somebody here think that despite what you may believe about what Cosby said back in 2004, does it, is there anybody who thinks he's not way hypocritical for lecturing black people while he was giving women pills to have sex? Now, all that being said, and this is just through my lens, it looks like the Pennsylvania Supreme Court got it right when they threw out his conviction. I said earlier that it was a technicality. Not really. Interestingly, although the court ruled six to one in his favor, when it came to a remedy, they were split four to three. The minority did want Cosby to face a new trial. The majority did not. After speaking with both civil and criminal lawyers on this, I have to admit that it looks like the court was right, at least ruling, that Cosby should not have been criminally prosecuted. I also don't think it's a technicality. It's a function and a fundamental component of United States law. Whether Bruce Castor, who went on after 2005 to represent Donald Trump in his second impeachment hearing, but you can't hold that against him. I mean, that, that would be, uh, you could, but the bottom line is he made this decision well before that. Now, it wasn't necessarily Bruce Castor 
being put in a position where he was right or he was wrong for making that promise to Cosby. A promise, however, is a promise, especially when it's made by someone who has an obligation to make good on it. That it wasn't Bruce Castor who decided to prosecute is irrelevant. Bill Cosby may have been freed because of this ruling, but he's going to have to deal with being a hypocritical perv who ought to be shunned for the rest of his days. By the way, I'm pretty sure he won't be shunned. Someone will pay him a princely sum for an interview. Actually, he did do an interview on WDAS-FM in Philadelphia not long after he was freed. Aside from that, let's see who's ready to dole out the dollars to talk to Bill Cosby. Up next, if there's anger in some quarters about freeing Bill Cosby, there's absolute fury north of the border in Canada. Want to know why? Stick around. This is The Intersection. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. There's palpable anger among the indigenous people in Canada. Seems more and more graves of indigenous children are found near schools whose avowed purpose was taking the indigenous out of indigenous young people. More than 1,000 graves have been found thus far. In order to fully understand the anger of the indigenous, the purpose and background of these schools must be exposed. We should say, first of all, they were boarding schools. It's not like these kids went to school and then went home to their parents. From the late 19th century through 1996, these schools, primarily run by religious organizations, took indigenous children, stripped them of their language, and in many cases, exposed them to disease, as well as physical and sexual abuse. It's the graves of these children snatched from their parents by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police that are now being discovered. Is it any wonder that indigenous protesters have torn down the statues of Queen Victoria and Queen Elizabeth? To them, these British monarchs established the colonial regimes that allowed these hellholes to exist. There have been offers of apologies and the like, far too late to erase the stain of what was done to these children. Religious institutions are supposed to live by certain values. That these schools were set up over nearly a century makes a mockery of those values. In other words, apologies aren't enough, not nearly enough. The Catholic Church paid restitution to victims of sexual abuse in parishes all over the United States. All over. The United States. They and the Anglican Church, where appropriate, need to make restitutions to the survivors of these schools and their descendants. It's estimated 150,000 children were forcibly shipped off to these schools, if you can actually call them institutions. Presbyterian churches and the United Church of Canada also have to answer for these outrages. Now, there have been fires at several churches across Canada. 
Some see this as a direct and destructive type of retribution. While I don't condone burning churches, I don't yet know if indigenous anger lit the fires. So how does Canada make amends? Restitution is one thing. I would go even further. I would put an indigenous elder at every step in Canada's immigration process. After all, they were on that land well before the colonizer. And trust me, if it wasn't for the colonizer, their kids, those 150,000 children, would have grown to lead very, very different lives. Let them have a role in who gets to come to Canada and live. It's the least the government of Justin Trudeau can do. In fact, the U.S. ought to think very, very seriously about doing the same thing. I feel very strongly about this because I was privileged to spend some time at the Lakota Reservation in South Dakota, out by Wounded Knee. And those of you who don't know what went on at Wounded Knee, you ought to look it up because it was not America's finest hour. And I saw indigenous children, indigenous children who had to walk miles in driven snow to get to school. I saw indigenous parents, good people, by the way, parents who would walk miles to volunteer at the radio station that we used to raise money for back in the day. And I know, and this is not to get sappy about the indigenous community. There are certainly loads of problems that they have. But many of those problems were brought on by colonization, whether it be in America, Canada, or wherever, in South America, as a matter of fact. And it's time that these countries, these governments, stand up, look these folks in the eye, and not just say sorry, but give them certainly the, the elders in their different communities, the ability to have some impact on U.S. policy toward indigenous people and all people of color. That's why Justin Trudeau needs to make amends by doing that, by giving them that role. And so should Joe Biden. Up next, the Trump Organization charged Trump rallies in the same state as the tragic condo collapse. What? This is The Intersection. Join the conversation at Mark Riley Media on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. No matter how you slice it, this hasn't been the best of times for former President Donald Trump. His business, the Trump Organization, and his CFO have been charged with tax fraud. They've pleaded not guilty, and they'll certainly have their day in court, as do all Americans charged with crimes. But these criminal charges 
brought by the Manhattan District Attorney could seriously affect his ability to do business the way he usually does business. Will banks, many of whom already refuse to do business with the Trump Organization, turn even more financial institutions against him? No matter. No worry. What matters to Donald Trump is adulation, and he found it in spades in Sarasota, Florida, at his Save America rally. Thousands of adherents braved a soaking rain to hear the former guy say what he always says at these types of gatherings. And, and he's had quite a few, certainly during the run-up to last year's election. According to Trump, he won last year's election. Critical race theory is itself racist. Religious liberty is being crushed. Blah, 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 blah. Of course, now he has a new beef. Persecution by the Manhattan DA's office. Ironically, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, an ally, did not show up for the rally. He was in Miami, where workers are trying to sift through the rubble of that condo that collapsed. And they're doing it in the face of an oncoming hurricane. You know, DeSantis's people tried to get Trump to postpone the rally. Fat chance. A little thing like more than 100 people missing and 24 dead and counting won't stop the Trump show. As for the criminal charges, they're just more grist for Trump supporters. Media who spoke to some at the rally kept hearing the same refrain. As a matter of fact, they could have just like run Donald Trump on a tape recorder and let him speak for the people who were there on his behalf. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. The charges they say are bold. The Democrats and the deep state have been trying to get Donald Trump since 2015 and so on and so on. Trump himself went on like this for 90 minutes. No mention, of course of the reported $255 million he raised to challenge last year's election and where that money ultimately went. They also didn't say a word, or certainly Trump didn't, about the $122 million he's had to refund because people didn't realize that their donations were recurring. Something tells me none of this would have made any difference to the crowd in Florida. Not sure it made any difference to them that their own governor was a no-show. DeSantis is a, one of a number of Republicans who have presidential aspirations. His lack of fealty to Trump, in other words, not showing up to his rally, may cost him in that regard, despite his long-standing support. Why would I, or any of you, care about this? because he may actually decide to run again in 2024, dividing the nation even more than he already has. Donald Trump is a liar, a cheat, a molester, a racist, a man who admits no responsibility for his failings whatsoever. And yet, he was elected president of the most powerful nation on earth. Go figure. Up next, Nancy Pelosi forms a select committee to probe the January 6th insurrection. Guess who's upset? This is The Intersection. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, public enemy number one, and you are listening to The Intersection with my hero, Mark Riley.
Welcome back to The Intersection. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is playing hardball. After the Senate blocked the formation of a bipartisan committee to investigate the January 6th Capitol insurrection, she decided to form a select committee in the House to do just that. The committee will have bipartisan representation since Wyoming Congresswoman Liz Cheney has already been asked to serve and agreed. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy can name members of his caucus to the committee, but he's probably not going to do so. There are reports McCarthy warned his members not to serve on the committee on pain of losing committee assignments they already had. You know, I have to say this. Kevin McCarthy is a special kind of weasel. He initially condemned the insurrection only to let his ambition to one day be Speaker of the House lead him to strip Cheney of her post as the number three House Republican after, at first, supporting her. Regardless of what McCarthy does, the Select Committee will be chaired by Mississippi Congressman Benny Thompson, chair of the Homeland Security Committee. Now, I've interviewed Benny Thompson. He is a no-nonsense, no-crap kind of guy. And a great choice, even though he's more moderate than maybe I would be. He's a great choice on the part of Speaker Pelosi. Now, Betty Thompson's committee, the Homeland Security Committee, is already at the start of its own probe. No matter, at least any attempt to appoint toads like Marjorie Taylor Greene or Matt Gates to this committee will come to naught. Pelosi, as it turned out, can veto any appointments. Getting to the bottom of the insurrection ought to be the most important piece of business Congress conducts. It may not get done this year or before the end of the year, but in this case, as long as it takes is soon enough. One thing we do know, five people died on January 6th. Much attention, at least on the right, has been focused on Ashley Barrett, who was shot and killed. Nobody likes to see a loss of life. Conservatives and insurrection apologists have turned Ashley Barrett into a martyr. Far fewer people know about another person who was killed on that day. Her name was Roseanne Boyland. That may be because she appears to have been trampled to death by the same mob she was a part of. Maybe with the formation of this select committee, the real story of the January 6th attack on democracy will finally be told. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well.